Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. Our topic this week is about the controversies surrounding foraging for native plants and how you can grow and use those native plants in your own garden. But first, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers, Dan F. and supporter Michael W. If you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog, you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com. Our guest, Lisa Novick, is a director of outreach and K-12 education for the Theodore Payne Foundation for Wildflowers and Native Plants. We contacted her after seeing her blog in the Huffington Post, Forage in the Garden, Not in What's Left of the Wild. In that post, Lisa expresses her concern about foraging and suggests that people grow native plants in their yards and in public spaces. Now, I realize that many of you listening to this do not live in California. While our conversation is California-centric, I think the principles Lisa discusses apply to other bioregions. And now, our conversation with Lisa Novick. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. I'm wondering if you could start with what you had to say about foraging in your blog post in the Huffington Post. I think what's important to say about foraging is that we are at this point where very little of our wildlands are left. 41% of the United States is given over to agriculture, and approximately 55% is urban and suburban areas. And so 4% of our wildlands nationwide are left. And so we need to respect them. We need to honor them and cherish them. And so the the choice that's before us is do we conserve or do we con- consume? And I would hope people would come out on the conserve side and say, if I want these plants, if I want to consume the white sage, the golden currants, the buckwheat, then I should grow these plants in my yard or in my community garden or on my church grounds or my synagogue, you know, just wherever there's public spaces or private spaces that have already been taken over by people, use those places to grow the plants and leave the wildlands intact because there's so few of them left and we need to to cherish what remains. Now, have you thought about, uh, I know a lot of native plant groups will have events where they remove invasive, invas- so-called invasive species. Have you thought about combining that with a, an event where actually we find uses for those invasive species? So in other words, we forage those invasive species we themselves. Push, push people towards forging those instead of natives? Right. Right. Um, yeah, you can. I mean, um, mustard is a member of the Cruciferous fa- family, so, I mean, you you can eat... Mustard, you know, put mustard flowers on on salad, and you know, there's there's many, I think, not, or some invasive non-natives that are are edible. You know, the the thing that people have to be careful of is when they go out to remove the invasive non-native species. You know, one, make sure that you're actually removing the right plant, and and make sure that you're not harming the the natives that are there by 
in, in trying to get to the invasives that you're not accidentally stepping on or, or harming the natives in, in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, but I think that is an excellent point. I mean, there, it, it would be great if there were more teams of weed warriors to go out and re- remove the invasive non-natives because, you know, many of them are, are still sold by commercial nurseries. And California taxpayers um, pay millions of dollars every year to have these plants removed from the wildlands because many of them increase the danger from from wildfires because they catch fire then faster than the native plants do and so you know there's a huge economic interest and many different kinds of reasons for removing the invasive non-natives and their culinary use is just one of them you know that speaking of eating weeds that that reminds me of a a kind of a, a a thought process I had around this problem. I, uh, like most people, just didn't know the difference between one weed and the other until I learned to forage weeds as edibles. Mm -hmm. And when I did learn that, uh, then when I took a walk around our neighborhood, it was like the whole sidewalk lit up. And I'd be like, oh, look, (laughs) there's a plantain, (laughs) there's a shepherd's purse, you know, and I started to, Mm -hmm. and everything became individuated. And it was just before it was just this like blur of green, or perhaps a moment of judgment, like, well, that person's got a weedy yard or whatever. And and instead, it's like, ooh, that person's got a lot of uh, miners lettuce growing. How how interesting that it's growing there, you know, so um, it brought plants to life to me. That's actually where I think I really started loving plants was in loving weeds. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that love jumped. So when I, to when I was hiking, then I started thinking, what are these things around me? <laughs> and, and, but it's always came from a selfish point of view. Um, so I'm, I'm now I'm speaking like the cult of selfish <laughs> and what selfishness can do for us. Um, is that, you know, I was interested in weeds in terms of their edible and medicinal uses. And my entree into appreciating native plants was their edible and medicinal uses. Mm-hmm. So getting people to to engage on an emotional level with these plants as opposed to just to like, well, you better do it because, you know, uh, sort of a finger waving, like, you know, we have right. to save the world. So you better plant that plant. Instead, it's like, look what you can do with this plant. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> so, right. Well, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is getting people to, to engage. And I think that, you know, um, you can you can engage by you know going out and walking in the forest or walking in your neighborhood with a guidebook you know to identify the plants. I mean, there's a great book, Weeds of of the West. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful book for for knowing what you're looking at. Um, or you know just when you walk through the forest, have a have a plant ID book for the plants of the chaparral or the coastal sage scrub. And um, I think you know the point is though for foraging of the native plants, you know, what, what we want to encourage people to do is in, engage with the plants, fall in love with their scent, their textures, the, you know, butterflies and birds that the plants attract, but then go home and, rec- and grow those plants at home for, for your own use. Or, and then in so doing, you also create habitat for all those creatures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so yes, I, I absolutely agree. We, we need to take you know, people's interest in these things for their own personal use and, and turn it into something that benefits our society 
as as a whole. Mm-hmm. In, instead of there just being more extraction of native plants that decreases their their numbers, let's increase the numbers. Let's let's you know let's make more, and let's plant out more, and then we can use more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's also just a certain joy in, in recognition that I think gets at maybe the origin of, of human language in terms of, of naming things and, and noticing mm-hmm. things. And, and we are hunter-gatherers, well, but, you know, and so I think we, we're, we're right. attuned to recognizing and naming. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I know you're working on some children's books. I wondered what's the kind of goal with those children's books and what, what, do, they, uh, what do they entail? Well, the, the goal of the children's books that I'm working on is to reconnect kids with the nature of their place. And the stories will all have back matter to have the kids then with their teachers or their parents or their, you know, Girl Scout or Boy Scout troops, whatever, go out in, into where they live and, and take a look at what's there. Take a look at um, for instance, you know, where the plants come from, what what do the plants feed, um, you know, native or, or non-native, just so we build a literacy of our, our environment. Because, you know, most people, when they look at the landscape, they just see green or they see brown, and they don't make any, they don't have any recognition of different plant types and or, or anything. It's just it's just all all green and all green is the same when it when it isn't the same. So the the goal of the books that I'm writing is is to tell stories that engage kids and make them curious about what what's around them and get them out and then show them how they can go out and make natural beauty where they live just through the smallest action as as planting one native plant. To bring in one kind of butterfly, and um, you know that. So that's that's the goal. What what I would love to see in more public spaces and in in people's yards is just small signs that say what the plant is and you know what it feeds or when it blooms, and um, you know just to sort of have there be this citizens' movement to increase the eco-literacy of people. That's a good because, idea. Because, you know, I just, I, I, I just think that, you know, we, we just live with plants and yet completely overlook them. I always so think, we, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Lisa. We, we just look, but, but we don't actually see. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's the green blur. <laughs> well, I always think of those, those, I can't remember their names. They're two educators on the East Coast who would show a slide of a bunch of commercial logos like Mercedes and Nike and et cetera, et cetera, to a group of kids. And they'd Little say, what are, what, are, what are these logos, kids? And, and, they and they'd all rattle off every single one. And then they'd show a, a, a similar grid of plants and they'd just get a blank stare. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And and see, the the thing is, is that kids, kids grow up to often do what they've fallen in love with as a child. And, you know, right now, if, if you are in a grocery store or, you know, wherever, and you see parents with kids, to, to amuse the two-year-old, they, they stick the cell phone in the two-year-old's hands. You know, they don't have, like, a sprig of sage or something with them or, like, a, you know, a, a cardboard 
book for the mm-hmm. kid to to read. And so children, instead of, you know, up until just 50 years ago, you know, kids would, their first exposure to so much of the world was, was nature in so many parts of the world. And, and now it's shifted so much in the last 50 to 60 years that, you know, typically kids have more of an emotional connection with, you know, their Game Boy or their computer or their iPhone or all those things that, you know, that's the thing that they've made the early childhood connection with and then they have no idea about the nature of their place. And if you don't have any idea about nature, then you have absolutely no idea why it's important to to be good stewards of it and, and, and to save it, let alone how, how to do that. So, you know, the thing we have to do through the stories we tell our kids and the stories we tell ourselves is to tell the kind of stories that inspire us to make that connection again. What impact have you seen from foraging regionally, foraging of native plants? Well, what I've seen regionally is that areas in the Angeles National Forest, for instance, where people used to easily find stands of white sage, they aren't there so much anymore. And a lot of trails are being cut through wildlands, you know, off of the main, so the main trails are being left and people are cutting all of these sideline paths, which is is trampling the existing habitat and just degrading the soil, messing with the seed bank. And so, you know, the the more people use it, the more they have to really adhere to, you know, a a respectful way of being in in the wild. And when you have people that cut trails and take out plants, it's more than this fragile, arid land ecosystem can sustain. Because when, when you think of it, when the Native Americans lived here, there were so much fewer of them then than there are of us now. And the Native Americans are, are still here, thank, thank goodness, to still teach us their, their ways of, of being and their relationship to the land and to the plants. But, you know, when, when we think about the Native Americans, when they were stewards of the land and they would tend the land for, you know, willow shoots and cut back the white sage, you know, for the ceremonial uses, they, they did it in a respectful way and there were so fewer number of the people then that it was sustainable Mm -hmm. and um you know but but now the impacts are just so much more because there's 23 million people in southern california and we just we 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 can't all turn into foragers again right and there's two i'm my attention is being drawn in two directions right now and we'll, we'll get to both of them one is is about um, what your um, article in the Huffington Post focused on was, which is uh, the new the new um, foraging for food, like haute cuisine is the native cuisine that that angle. But then there's also the white sage angle. And white sage is not an edible, but it's what makes the smudge sticks that have long been um, popular in the New Age community and in the witchcraft shops. <laughs> but I have the feeling, and it's just completely anecdotal, that I'm seeing more and more 
white sage smudge sticks everywhere. I go to our local health food store. There's a big pile of them. I see them in boutiques up and down Sunset Boulevard. And white sage for people who are not local, uh, it's is it what what where is the white sage endemic to? Well, it's um, in the in the chaparral lands, and so um, you know that's that's where where people find it. And, and so it's um, only like su- southern California down into Mexico. I mean, how f- it's it's a sm- rather small region that white sage is native to. Is that correct? Right. It um, the the sages you know don't aren't throughout all of of our our state. And um, they're in in the chaparral lands, and so you know we're really fortunate to have that here. And um, tying that in with foragers' use of it, um, they are using it for more than smudge sticks. Oh, that's using right. It, you know, to, is... to cook game and cook yeah. different kinds of meat. Um, yeah, you're right. So, you know. If if people want the white sage, we should be farming it um, because it seems to seem to be uh, desired all over the country. Um, right. I mean, it's so. it's it's very much like you know the French um, in in southern France. Lavender is part of their ecosystem in the um, southeastern part of France, and they've made a whole industry out of distilling the lavender oil and growing, you know, fields and fields and fields of lavender. I mean, it, it would be better not to grow a, a mono type of culture, mm-hmm. it, and it would be better to have, um, you know, mixed lands of plants because then you get much healthier plants and you keep up a range of all kinds of pollinators and other species. But, um, you know, we, we need to look at what the rest of the world has done with their native plant treasures and do that over here instead of foraging in what little wildlands are left. Back to the, the impact issue, have you seen any studies or, or anecdotes about um, the damage of, that foragers have done regionally? Uh, have you had any contact with the Forest Service? Uh, do they do any kind of enforcement? What have you heard about what's mm-hmm. going on? right now well to in in order to forage you actually do need a permit and the point about our our wildlands in um in all the federally protected areas like the angeles national forest and now the new san gabriel national uh, san gabriel mountains national monument the federal permit um, requirements state that national forest service land is not made available if the overall needs of the individual or the business can be met on non-federal lands. So, you know, people that are, are that want to go into our wildlands and forage, they could just as easily grow all these plants at home, create a mini native plant ecosystem of the golden currants, the wild strawberries, the the mugwort, the white sage, all of those things that you can, you know, make wonderful foods out of. They they could grow those at home and leave our wildlands in intact. And um, I think you know because our national uh, wildlands, you know, the, the the forests and our parks are understaffed because they're underfunded. This is something that's just kind of not been a huge, huge priority for the rangers. But if you uh, look on online, you'll see that in in California, for instance, 
because of foraging, they've had to close parts of the coastline because the abalone was just getting wiped out. And mushrooms in parts of, of California are just getting wiped out. And, you know, people are having mushroom festivals. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's already happening. And, and unfortunately, it, it seems that only once things are devastated, do then the laws come into effect saying, you know, this isn't allowed, but it's after the damage is, is done. Now, have you seen any interest on the part of farmers in, in terms of uh, growing things like white sage or, or other native uh, culinary or medicinal plants? Are there some examples of that? Well, um, I've, I'm in contact with some farmers in the Fillmore area, and there there is interest in in being able to grow the you know the toyon the manzanita and the other native plants that the sh- uh, chefs and and the public would like would like to use in cooking you know things like you you can make wonderful infusions of el- elderberry flowers and manzanita berries and um, mint um, not that mint is native but um, you can add sage leaves because sage is part of the mint family and. You know, so I think I, I think that this is a new green economy, just you know, waiting to just take off. Instead of going in to to pillage from the wildlands, we should turn it and shift our way of thinking to say, let's make a new green economy that can benefit the whole region and and maintain the integrity of our remaining wild spaces. Now, maybe we could take it to a personal level too. Now, you're working on a book. And I'd like to hear some of the stories from this book. But one of the interesting things that you said before we started uh, rolling tape here, or before we started recording, I'm an old man. <laughs> rolling no the tape. tape. Here. But um, <laughs> is that you're interested in telling stories. I think, you know, to change the paradigm, uh, the lawn and shrub and the very concrete kind of boring paradigm that we have here in Southern California. I wonder if you could say something about the goals that, that you're, you've set out to do with this uh, book that you're working on. Well, the goal of the stories in the book is to show people the beauty and the life that happens when you plant a native garden. For instance, one of the stories in the book is... Um, centered on my my own yard and how when I moved to my house, it was just lawn and roses everywhere, just lawn, flat lawn, and then thorny sort of hedges of roses. And the only thing in the yard were a couple of, of, of honeybees now and then. And because the previous owners had sprayed every single week to kill every, you know, spider, every cricket. I mean, there was just nothing living on the property for the most part besides the people in the houses, in in the house. And so, so when we moved in, I started to kill the lawn. And one of the very first plants that I planted was an, an elderberry tree. Mm-hmm. And this tree is now about 25 feet high and is wide, and it is like a giant canopy of big clusters of butter yellow, tiny flowers that, when they're pollinated, turn turn into clusters of, of elderberries. And the butterflies that come to nectar on those flowers uh, from the moment it, they start to bloom in spring through midsummer, 
and then the birds that come from late summer through fall as the berries ripen over several months is just it's amazing the life that I get in my yard because of that one tree and if if that if that tree weren't here, none of those insects and animals would be in my yard either. Now, you told another story from um, that book you're working on before we started rolling, which was uh, about what happened to a neighbor's yard, and uh, which speaks to something about how we, I guess, how we need to have a conversation with our neighbors. I wonder how, if you could uh, recount that story. Oh, boy. Well, it's, it's a sad story that's slowly having a better end ending, but very, very slowly. So to the west of my house, I, my neighbor lived there. She was 95 years old when she died. And when she was about um, 70, she put in a native plant garden. So this was back in the mid-80s or early 80s when there you know, was the drought of that period. And so she put in Palo Verdes and Manzanitas and Cyanosis, the, the native lilac, and all kinds of sage. And it, I mean, it was a beautiful yard and used very little water. And she had all kinds of hummingbirds and migratory birds and all kinds of butterflies there because those are, because of coevolution, our insects and animals need the plants that are native because they co-evolved with them, and that's what most of them need in order to survive. So anyway, so when my neighbor died at age 95, the new family moved in. And I was really worried about what was going to happen because there's mansionization happening all over the city where I live. And so I went over and I talked to the new neighbors and I said, you have a really special yard here. And so I asked them if I could give them a, a, a tour of their yard. And so I walked them through all the plants and I showed them pictures of the butterflies that each plant supported for larval food for the caterpillars. And, you know, the plants that when their flowers were pollinated would make berries for the berry-eating birds. So I walked through their whole yard and, you know, showed them everything and pictures of the plants in bloom and the plants in berry and and my my neighbor's yard was nearly completely evergreen so it was a beautiful yard and um long story short what what she did what the new neighbors did is they bulldozed everything except for one native tree and um it just broke my heart because it what they did then was they installed 8,000 square feet of lawn and their water bill went through the roof and then their children came to play in my yard because my <laughs> yard was where it was interesting. You know, there were things happening, things buzzing around and flitting around and lizards and, you know, places to make little secret forts. Um, you know, and you can't do that in 8,000 square feet of lawn. It's just flat and, and sterile. And so when the neighbor's water bills went through the roof, then they came to me and said, oh, dear, why didn't you, you know, talk to us more forcefully about what we were getting into when we, you know, were thinking about making a lawn here again? Yeah, Lisa. And I said, yeah, you, know, you know, I should have been more fearsome with them. <laughs> Do you think that they do you think that they put the lawn in because they had kids that classic we have kids we have to have a lawn thing? 
I, th- I think so, but the, the thing that people um, should do since they, since they have kids is they should just put in a small patch of lawn. I mean, because it's, it's nice to have a place to go and, you know, lay a blanket down on and, and stare up through the canopy of the elderberry tree and, you know, watch the butterflies and the birds. But it doesn't have to be 8,000 square feet. <laughs> Unless you're a soccer team or something like that. <laughs> right. You know, and then go to the park. Yeah. Right, right. Well, there's such – this is something I puzzle on all the time because I um, you know, I have a deep love of, of native plants and, and, I, and, a, and a growing fascination with, like, the biodiversity in our yard. And, and, and with that – growing passion comes like kind of a growing horror of what I see around me. Like it's, it's like always, it's a two edged sword. <laughs> the more, you know, then the more the things that used to just ignore, like the neighbors with the yard, that's entirely concrete or whatever they used to just go, well, that's ugly. Now I see it as, as a great lost opportunity, you know, and I wonder what, you know, maybe I remember what was there before, or I imagine what could be there. And it's, it's actually painful to see at this point, but I see that people have such a huge disconnect from nature that the, if you come like you did and you, you walk up to them and you say, look, the butterflies eat this plant, birds depend on this, on the berries on this plant, you know, when they're migrating or whatever, it, it just sort of seems to go in one ear and out the other because that, that initial connection is not there. Right. Um, and that is what – so it's very hard to make the, the argument to them that they should spend extra time and energy learning about native plants and, and, and adopting an entirely new aesthetic paradigm in their yards when all most people can handle is the lawn and roast bush because that's all they've ever seen and all they ever known. And the 10 minutes they're going to give to this decision <laughs> can only encompass a lawn and a box hedge or something like that. You know, so I, I, I don't know what, what I'm asking you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm voicing my own frustration because we, um, you know, we're always wondering how, do, how do we better communicate to our neighbors? Is there anything we can do, um, on, on the neighborhood level to help our neighbors, uh, introduce more native plants into their landscape? Uh, how can we model this in our own yard? Um, how do we fight what I call the cult of tidiness, you know, where nothing's more important than having a tidy yard. Like as if tidiness right. is our highest aspiration as humans. And to the, the, end, the end game with tidiness is all concrete that's regularly blown. Right. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's like where the trajectory that we're all heading towards. Um, then there's the, then there's the uh, bare dirt that's swept clean so, God forbid, a leaf could ever lay on, lay on the bare dirt. You know? right. Right. And then and there's then, the lawn. And and, yeah. It's so, <laughs> so how do we communicate? I love your idea of telling stories. Yeah, I think, I, I think stories are essential because that's what people have. I mean, like the insects and animals have evolved with the plants and need the plants. People need stories. We've evolved with stories for mil- millions of years, telling each other stories for group cohesion and group sur- survival and to celebrate things that are important in, in life. And so, you know, my, my, my book is about not only how we've, the book that has still yet to be published, 
um, is about not only how we've changed the nature of L.A., how we've come in and erased the landscape and put in all of these non-native plants that, for the most part, just devastate the ecosystem. And then it's also about how we as humans need to change our nature to, to you know, once again be more in tune with the nature of our place and become part of it and become stewards so that, you know, we're a, a benefit to where we live instead of a hindrance to the life, you know, that also makes this their home or tries to make this their home as, as well as us. So in, in terms of trying to turn the ship and trying to connect with people so that they are inspired, I think, I think stories are, are hugely important for, our, for articulating what's possible. And then I also think that it's really important just to get in as many maintained native gardens as possible throughout the city, in public spaces, in schools, just so that people start to see this as, every, as an everyday part of their lives. And if I really believe that it's that emotional connection that, if, that people make with something, like, this, like the scent of sage or the beauty of an, ev- of an evening primrose when it unfurls in the evening and the sphinx moths come, if, if they can get that connection, that emotional connection, then they're going to be more inclined to, to do the right thing when faced with the choice of do I pour concrete or do I put down mulch and put in a border of plants. Now, sometimes we're um, pushed to action um, through negative uh, consequences, you know, as, as in with the drought. And, and you work at the, uh, the wonderful Theodore Payne Foundation. Ha- has there been uh, an uptick of interest in native plants just simply because of the drought? There's been a, a, a huge uptick, and what people are always so uh, amazed to discover and heartened to discover is that by planting native plants, you're not, and having a native garden, you're not only uh, using up to 80% less water in your garden, but you're also helping to save different kinds of species of butterflies and, and birds because you know, the native plants are, are what they need. Most, most people have no idea that, that uh, most caterpillars of most butterflies in the southern half of our state can only eat just a couple of native plant species for each kind of, of caterpillar. Um, and so if you plant the native plants, then you feed the caterpillars, and then you get butterflies. And then if you have caterpillars, then you support birds because caterpillars are the main food of baby birds. So, so when people come to the Theodore Payne Foundation, you know, they're, they're doing so because they're curious about native plants and they want a garden that is more, more responsible. But then they find out that there are all these incredible other kinds of benefits that they just hadn't even really thought about besides water. They, you know, find out that you don't need to use fertilizers and pesticides or, or any kinds of, of soil amendments because natives evolved in our soil and they don't need all that stuff. They evolved with our bugs and don't need all that stuff. So just all the benefits that come with native plants, when people find out about them, they're, they're amazed and then they just want to do more. One one of the hurdles, though, I, I got to say that that we faced is neither Kelly or I are are landscape designers. It's something that we struggle with uh, design. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd had some tips 
for people who want to replace their lawn but are having trouble kind of seeing the specifics of, of how they should lay it out and what it should look like. Or maybe there's a way to transition from a traditional nat- uh, landscape to a native one. Like maybe instead of doing a whole like renovation, stripping it all down and start from scratch, mm-hmm. maybe there's a way that people could you know start adding native plants to their landscape or substituting natives you know, in places where traditional plants go. Yeah, don't ever try to do a, a native landscape all at once. It's it's too hard doing everything all at once. Do it in, in increments and just do sections at a time. And the best thing that people could do uh, to start is to, to educate themselves. Go to 2016.nativeplantgardentour.org. Um, on on the web, and that shows the 41 native plant home gardens on the Theodore Payne Foundation's tour from this year. And it's divided into two regions, the valley regions and then the coastal regions. And so depending on where you live, you, you would look at those gardens to discover your plant palette. And so the summer is the time to educate yourself about the kind of plants that grow naturally in your area. And then in fall and in winter, that's the optimal time to plant because the heat of the summer is pretty much over Mm -hmm. and the rains will hopefully have have started again. And um, so that's the easiest time to plant because it's the time of least stress for the plant. And so to, to convert, what I would do is just start carving away at the lawn. So leave sort of a, a, a patch of it. And then around it, you know, put in your sages and your buckwheats and your lilacs, um, you know, depending on the space that you have. And, and really the easiest way to think about how to plan your yard is to, is to look at the width of, at maturity of the plant. And so let's say you had, for instance, a six-foot-wide strip of land that was 36 feet long, and you needed ground covers on that piece of land, and it's in full sun. So what, what you do is look at the Theodore Payne Foundation's uh, plant lists. Uh, we have, for instance, plants for slopes, plants for dry shade and under oaks, all sorts of lists for different situations. And, and then you'd see that there's a sage ground cover that is six feet wide at maturity, stays low, it's evergreen, and so you'd put six of those six-foot-wide sage ground covers into that 36-foot-long space because six times six is 36. So that's, that's sort of the way you wrap your mind around doing a, um, a native landscape is just figure out width at maturity, block it out on, on graph paper, and just play with it. Get, get colored pencils and just play with different ways of, of doing things and imagine the different heights and the different bloom times that you want for different species in, in your yard. I think the with that maturity is such a key point. It's one that we learned the hard <laughs> We've way. We've screwed up on that one quite a bit. <laughs> I think uh, most beginning gardeners do. Yeah. We, we, everybody puts stuff too close. It's so, it can be very tempting when you're planting you know, um, to kind of pack stuff in there so it looks done. And I think we're encouraged to do that by those weird overnight garden shows that 
that show like the landscape, you know, done overnight, the team comes in and plants a bunch of things really close and then disappears and the, and the homeowners weep because they're so happy because their yard is so beautiful. But they don't show that same yard a year later. <laughs> <laughs> when things right. have gone nuts. Um, and it's it takes a certain amount of discipline to be looking at a 36-foot strip that has six <laughs> tiny, six tiny plants. little <laughs> tiny plants at six-foot intervals <laughs> looking lost and alone and, and to just hold in your mind that they will be huge. You know? And I think so, I, I have learned that the hard way, but, you know, because if you don't do that, then you are in a in a place where, you, you know, you have to prune all the time, uh, you know, because they're encroaching on the walkway or um, or you just get that kind of weird, ugly, smashed together look that I see, you know, everywhere. Um, I try not to have in my yard anymore <laughs> where you have plants that are too large, too close. Uh, when, right. they, when they can take their own shape, um, when they have enough room to kind of take their natural form, you know, that's, I think, when they're their most beautiful. But that requires patience on the human side of the equation to let them do that. Right. Well, sage, for instance, like a black sage ground cover, that'll be six feet wide in about a year and a half to, to two years. So they, they grow pretty fast. And then while they're growing in, you can scatter wildflower seeds yeah. um, in, in the fall in, in the blank spaces in, in between the plants. So, or you could plant uh, shorter-lived plants like, like deerweed, you know, which grows very quickly and gives you lots of flowers and then those plants are not typically very long lived so that by the time the sage fills in the, the deer wheat is ending its lifespan but then by that time you've already you've, you've got the sage completely over the ground that you wish to cover. What are some other um, common mistakes that newbie native gardeners make or things that you want to say no no don't do that <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the thing that, that people need to remember is that every pollinated flower makes something, and don't, don't deadhead right after the flower is done blooming. I think ornamental gardening has, has drummed it into people's head that you instantly deadhead to encourage, you know, more flowers to come out. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, if, if you deadhead your... Your penstemon, for instance, right after it's done blooming to try to encourage more flowers, then you're cutting off what would become stalks of seeds for the seed-eating birds in the late summer and, and the fall. So, And same with the sage. So, so, for instance, all spring, hummingbirds and long-tongued bees and other kinds of pollinators will nectar on the whorls of the sage flowers. And then once the flowers... Uh, dry up and fall off, then in each of the bracts of the whorls, seeds form. And then starting in late summer, house finches, sparrows, all other kinds of birds come and they perch on those old stalks of the old flower husks and just eat the seeds right out of the old flower husk. So there's your color in, in the garden, it, but mm-hmm. it's moving. It's, mm-hmm. it's not a stat- a, a a flower that is, you know, stuck to the plant. This is, you know, life and movement and color because of the seeds that you've provided. Yeah, so just don't, I would say, don't deadhead um, <laughs> immediately when, when it's done blooming. Wait until all the seeds or berries have been eaten, and then you can go in and neaten up the plant. 
So we have to develop a little bit more tolerance for, you know, what what we would call an untidy garden, you know, with the fascism of our tidiness, you know, right. the, the, and, and maybe a, a appreciation for the beauty of those those brown stalks. Right. Except, except sometimes those stalks are pretty in themselves, to yes, point out. Yeah, they, they, they are, but it's, and... I think it's a kind of um, beauty that is a developed taste it's like the, it's a little bit like the jab it's like wabi-sabi it's it's like a japanese kind of beauty like you know it's dead but it's beautiful you know because like like you had said the um ornamental gardening uh, has certain protocols you know which is like you know one of them is color 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 all the time uh nothing brown nothing left you know um mm-hmm. left to go to seed you know what i will do when uh, when we're done talking here, is I will send you some photos of um, St. Catherine's Lace Buckwheat uh, flowers when they have turned this beautiful, rich, rust brown. It looks like brown lace. Just the whole bush looks like it's covered with rust brown lace, and it's gorgeous. And then I'll send you some uh, photos of Hooker's Evening Primrose um, of those seed husks. They end up mm-hmm. looking like small tulips with the petals folded back from where the, from when the birds thrust their beaks down into the, the old um, flower husks for the seeds. I mean, it's, they're, they're beautiful. It's very architectural. I'll put those in the show notes for this show, too, so people listening to this can see them. Yeah, yeah on our website. Now, I'm wondering, uh, for people who want to do a culinary California native garden, if you have any specific suggestions for plants that might be good for that. Oh yeah, there are there are so many. I mean, um, I'd start with the sages because there, for every sage we have, each of the species has a slightly different aroma to its leaf. So you know, black sage is very different from white sage, and then there's all the different kinds in in between. Then I'd also have hummingbird sage, sage mm. which to me smells like like pineapple. Then I would also have a, a California Bay laurel tree. It smells like bubble gum combined with mint and a little bit of a hint of pepper. And um, that's wonderful for, for cooking. You can use the sages in cooking and for in infusions in um, drinks. The sages make great teas. Then I'd have mugwort, and I would have all the different kinds of currants. I'd have golden currant, pink flowering currant, I have the native strawberry. Um, that was what um, our commercial strawberry was made from, was the native strawberry. And, oh, and I have elderberry. Elderberries make great pies. They're mm-hmm. just, and they're wonderful to eat just right off the, the tree. What do you do with the mugwort edibly? Well, mug, mugwort is a, is a, it's a very use, useful plant. Um, Mugwort is one of the plants that you can use as an antidote to um, if you're if if you brush up against poison oak. So, for instance, when before my husband and I go hiking, he is a- allergic to poison oak quite quite strongly. So we stick some elderberry leaves and some mugwort leaves in his pocket before we go out, just in case we run into to poison oak where there doesn't happen to be any elderberries or mugwort growing. And then you you would uh, crush the the leaves till the cell walls break down and the juice pours out. And then you'd rub 
that um, juice on the spot where the poison oak touched. Mm. And it's it's quite effective at stopping an outbreak of, of poison oak three days later. Uh, I have one last question on, on just on the uh, how-to sort of side of things, I guess. I'm interested in the uh, notion of uh, native plants in containers, uh, mostly in a selfish way because I have run out of space in my yard. <laughs> Um, and there's still natives I want uh, because I, I have, um, especially since I, I, I will confess that, um, oh, well, I, I, I have had some, say, I have sages. I have quite a bit in the yard already, um, and so I don't forage those. But I have been known to forage a little bit when I go out hiking. Um, and uh, But since the drought started, I, I felt bad about it. And I just, I see the plants struggling and I don't want to take anything from them. But I miss them, <laughs> like, especially right. like my, I, one of my favorite native plants is the Yerba Santa. Mm-hmm. Um, the smell, I, I could just roll in it. I love it so much. I wish I had a big Yerba Santa on my property, but I don't have one and I don't think I have room anywhere. Uh, so particularly, I'm wondering if I could get put a Yerba Santa in a pod, if it would survive that, if it would be happy. You know, that, I mean, that's a very large... It is a big rooted, pot. <laughs> I mean, it would have to be a really big pot. Um, you know, there, there are many native plants that are good for c- containers, but for the plants that get large, I mean, you, you, you'd want a container that's as big big as the drip line of the plant. Mm-hmm. And so Yerba Santa gets, what, about six feet wide-ish? Mm. And I've seen it even bigger in the wild. I've seen, you know, one plant be like 10 to 12 feet wide in, in the wild. I mean, that that would be very tough to put in a container and to, to keep it there beyond a couple of years. Yeah. Right. It's, because it's, it's, it's a plant that just, you know, wants to be its true shape, wants to get as big as it should grow. And by keeping it in too small of a container, you'd be sort of forcing it to stay small, sort of like a bonsai. Right, right. I don't know if people have tried to bonsai native plants, but mm-hmm. um, they, then they wouldn't take their, their natural shape, that's for sure. Right. Well, what natives do do well in containers? Uh, coffee berry, manzanita. Because those um, are big, too, but they... They just but the but the coffee berry and the manzanita both grow quite slowly. Oh, okay. So so those do fine in pots. Mm-hmm. Um, for for shade, um, island bush snapdragon does great in in pots. Any of the penstemons do well in pots. So does ver, verbena. Many of the ground cover lilacs uh, also do fine in pots. If you go onto the Theodore Payne Native, sorry, if you go onto Theodore Payne Foundation website, which is theodorepayne.org, and then you go under uh, nursery and then plant guides, you'll see a whole list of native plants for containers. And and at the nursery, on each plant species sign, there is an icon with a plant in a pot. So if if you see that, you know you're you're good to go. Cool. Well, um, we're. About near the end of our time, Lisa, is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you want to make sure that that you have a chance to talk about? Well, I just wanted to say that that we're at this point in the history of our region where we can really make the place we live something that the people that follow us will thank us for. We can we can revitalize the landscape and re-inhabit this place 
from an ecologically minded ethic by by planting natives. The thing that most people don't realize is that 90% of all leaf-eating insect species worldwide can eat only native plants. And native plants are what make the nature of each place around the world. And so, you know, in Los Angeles, we've come in and the plants that most nurseries carry are not native because they're plants that, you know, people were used to from their homes where they came from before they settled here. And so they wanted things that reminded them of where they used to live, things that were familiar. But what we've got to do in order to live sustainably in L.A. is plant for the nature of this place so that we have enough water, so that we have pollinators and birds and butterflies and all these different kinds of creatures and functioning ecosystems that we need for all the benefits that functioning ecosystems give us. And so, you know, right now is the time to make the switch and to start with the paradigm shift of appreciating the nature of this place and and loving what's still possible here and bringing back the birds, bringing back the butterflies and using 80% less water at the same time and creating a place that, you know, our children and, and grandchildren will thank us for. Well, thank oh, you, thank Lisa. You. Thank you for spending time with us. Yeah, that's an excellent place to end. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank, well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, to have talked with you. If you're a Southern California listener and interested in bringing native plants to public spaces, Lisa had some more she wanted to add. If people have a public space in mind, like at a, at a post office or something like that, uh, where it's in need of a landscaping redo and they would like to do native plants, they could get in touch with me, lisa at theodorepain.org, and uh, we can do something through the Foundation's Landscaping for Resilience program where we work with a community, and it's a community-initiated project where we do a plan for the space the community installs it and then maintains it and what this does is it gets native plant landscapes into public spaces while at the same time training the public in in how to plant and how to water and and how to maintain the plants and then the idea is that they then take those skills back home and then transform their own yards as as well um, one of one of the great benefits of the program is that, for instance, there's a common misconception about how you water a native plant. And the thing is, is that for the first year, including the first two summers, native plants need to be watered in a deep way, so about three to five gallons per plant. And that could be once every five to seven days, depending on your type of soil, if you have slow-draining soil or fast-draining soil. So the Landscaping for Resilience program is really great because it gets the knowledge base into the community and teaches people about how to install and care for the plants and 
hopefully those plants would all also be labeled so that as you know people walk by, they'll say, oh, this is a native sage, or this is a hummingbird sage, or a buckwheat that feeds different types of blue butterflies. So all that kind of thing is really important for educating the public. That was Lisa Novick. Her email is lisa at theodorepain.org. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for your support. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.